I've never seen fire move like that or, or, or act this way, behave this way at this time of day, high humidity, maybe more moisture. And so, you know, the concern for, for you know, fire chiefs, firefighters everywhere, it doesn't matter whether you're federal, state, or local, is crew safety. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. Enchanted Sky Studios in Prescott, Arizona. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategies, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thanks for joining me again here on another edition of Code 3. You are listening to the show for and about firefighters. Let's get started. If you're a city firefighter, you'd probably rather not deal with wildland fires at all. That's normally not a problem until the flames reach the wildland urban interface. That's happening a lot more than it used to. Then you guys from the cities need to know stuff like the 18 watchouts. Pop quiz. What's your 11th watchout? No, don't look at him. Look at me. What's your 11th watchout? The fire liner. Cut has been anchored. Boom, that's eight. Or how to be ready to go on a run that lasts 12 hours. A few decades ago, city firefighters didn't have to be concerned with this. Welcome to the new normal. Here to discuss that with me is Brian Fennessy. Brian is the chief of the Orange County, California Fire Authority. He began his fire service career in 1978, working as a hotshot crew member with the U.S. Forest Service. He eventually made his way up to crew superintendent. In 1990, Brian joined the San Diego Fire Rescue Department, and he became chief of that department in 2015. He's held multiple incident command system certifications and positions, and he's also served on national incident management teams. And Brian Fennessy joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Thank you, Scott. How well cross-trained are structural firefighters for this particular job? Well, that's a that's a great question. I, I think you know typically it, it really depends on you know where geographically a municipal or, or structural fire department is located. Somewhere you know like California, they're very well, and Arizona and other places in the West, they're, they're very well trained, or at least trained to a minimum standard. In, some of the more urban areas because we all respond to the same wildland urban inter- interface uh, fires. There may be other places within the west and certainly out east where there is little to any wildland urban interface threat and that don't participate perhaps in the mutual aid system that, that perhaps don't have that same level of minimum basic training. But what I like to share with people, Scott, is, you know, well, even largest, most municipal, structurally-based metropolitan fire departments in the West now need to consider themselves also wildland fire agencies. That is what we do. And 
that is what we respond to as part of the mutual aid system. So it's, a, it's imperative that we that all of our firefighters are trained to a level that will not only provide assistance from a suppression perspective, but also keep themselves safe and those that they work with safe so they can go home. When did this become an issue? I mean, there was a time that I recall that city firefighters worked within the city, wildland guys worked in the national forests, and that was it. Now, of course, things are different. When did that change? You know, I think it's been an evolution. I, I agree with you. I've been doing this. I've been a firefighter since 1978, and I started with the U.S. Forest Service. I spent 13 years as a wildland firefighter with the federal land resource agencies, and, and all of that time being on hotshot crews and or crews assigned to hotshot crews assigned to helicopters, and left as a crew superintendent. And um, that was very much the case. You know, we would we would be up on the side of the hill dealing with the wildland fire part of a the emergency and the structure fire folks would be down around the houses providing you know structure defense and i believe we started to see that evolution into the 80s and certainly to the 90s as fires got larger as you know, developments became more and more prevalent you know in areas that were had been open space and now the structure fire departments were actually responding to fires within these areas to the point where today uh, you know, everybody is affected by wildland fire. I, I would even offer up that those that live in a high-rise condominium in the middle of a downtown metropolitan area like San Diego or L.A. are affected when these large fires cause businesses to shut down, smoke, the, you know, affect airports. The dollar loss, you know, we're finding it far exceeds that of the cost of suppressing these fires anymore, you know, that the dollar loss to the economy so it's become, certainly in California, an issue for everybody. But back to your question, um, I think it's been a slow evolution. And, you know, we are now seeing, you know, city, large municipal departments, San Francisco, L.A. City, San Diego City, that are sending strike teams to, you know, forested areas, timber fires, those sorts of things. And as fire chiefs, we can't send them off without, you know, first providing them a, a um, level of training that that allow us to believe that they will be successful again and not just suppressing the fire but but coming home and safe but it's been a long you know it's probably been a, a, an evolution of many many years scott are these fires more intense than they used to be well i think what we're seeing is certainly you know not just it used to be a southern california thing in the fall and you know, we have fires to the north and certainly in the west during the you know bulk of the, the summer months and that's changed you know over the last 10 12 years and i believe it's climate change but we are seeing you know wind-driven fires concurrent we just saw one you know between the campfire in Butte county and the woolsey fire in, in southern california I, I can't remember a time when we had um offshore winds or like that in both northern and southern california you know the fuels are are even though we had precipitation out here in California this year, the fuels, you know, after sustained drought are, are dead. And many of those fuels are not going to come back. And they're now, you know, within a, a live fuel bed that is, is drying out rapidly. Um, fires in Colorado, fires in Washington. I remember a time when you know, the Panorama Fire in 1980 destroyed 300 homes in, in San Bernardino. 
And I remember thinking then, if you talked then, that that was unheard of. That losing 300 homes just doesn't happen, and we're not going to. That was an anomaly. Unfortunately, you know, losing dozens of homes or that many, depending on activity in the, in the West, may or may not even make you know national news headline anymore. It's, I think in many ways, we you know we the public may have become desensitized because losing structures and forests. Wildland fires has become, you know, quite common. It's unfortunate, but you know, fires used to be that, you know, on occasion you'd have fires in wilderness areas that we knew there were not enough firefighters, aircraft, ground equipment that were going to be able to suppress that fire, and you know, it would take the rain, you know, the winter to come to to do that for us. That has become common, and not just in wilderness areas. We get so many of these fires burning at the same time. There aren't enough firefighters in the country, perhaps the world, in aircraft to fully suppress them. So we find ourselves prioritizing fires in areas of fires where to apply you know, our limited resources to do the best good for the most. You know, it's true, those DC-10 air tankers and the 747 Global Air Tanker find themselves busier than ever because everyone wants them on their fire now. You're exactly right. And, and while they are extremely capable, there's only a few of them, right? And, you know, when, when the Federal uh, Forest Service you know, contract air tanker fleet um, that became grounded because of the the access that they were experiencing, gosh, it must have been, I don't know, 10 years ago or whatever it was, we haven't fully recovered. You know, the state of California has done a great job with their air tanker fleet. They've just, believe, received eight C-130 large air tankers uh, from the federal government that are being retrofitted. We'll start to see those, you know, probably two or three a year coming out. So we're getting better then, but as, as you say, um, it's just a limited resource. And when you've got multiple fires going and multiple fires that are threatening life and property, there just aren't enough to go around. In your opinion, has there been enough attention given to coordinating command and control between wildland and city fire units when they have to work together? I think so, and and maybe I've got a bias because I've spent a large part of my career here in Southern California, but... Yeah, just about every county, certainly in Southern California, are training regularly with their federal and state partners, uh, meeting, discussing, tabletop, and those sorts of things. In fact, on July 9th, all of the agencies that operate helicopters at night are going to be conducting a full-scale exercise in L.A. County to include the Forest Service, so we're all Fighting, you know, we're all drilling and exercising at night, talking together. We're on the same frequency. So this has become very, very common. I often say, and you'll hear me say it at, at just about every news conference, that there's no greater threat to life and property than wildland fire in California. I used to say just Southern California, but I believe that's now in California. So the coordination among the local, state, fed, federal uh, fire agencies has never been better. It's, it's impressive. One of the things we're very proud of. What do you consider to be the most serious safety issue for crews operating in the wildland urban interface? I think it's, you know, right now, I believe it's the rates of spread, uh, fire spread that we're seeing. You know, we used to, many of us had spent you know, a lot of time doing this work, perhaps on crews where you had to 
your skill at making good fire behavior predictions, that's much harder now. You know, fires are not behaving like they did for many, many years. Some of it's due, of course, to the, the, the unhealthy forest conditions out there. We've done such a great job at suppressing fires over the last 80, 90, 100 years and keeping them small that the forest has got an undergrowth that, that is unhealthy. Um, the drought, certainly, and, and you know, the fuel conditions. But I'm personally, you know, watching fire spread in ways that, that we've never seen before. So there have been occasions where you know, we've certainly felt that our crews were good and safe, you know, had time to be where they were and to move out. You know, the fire became you know, too close or active. And we're finding that timeline has jumped up quite a bit. I can't begin to tell you how many times that we're remarking on each other, wow, I've never seen fire move like that or, or, or act this way, behave this way at this time of day with high humidities with maybe more moisture. And so, you know, the concern for, for you know, fire chiefs, firefighters everywhere, it doesn't matter whether you're federal, state, or local, is crew safety. We are focusing more now that fires have become, in many instances, uncontrollable, focusing our efforts on rescue, getting people out of the way of these fires, making sure that our firefighters are not putting themselves in positions where they're going to harm themselves. I think the fire spread, we're seeing it in Northern California through the timber model. We're certainly seeing it through Southern California, the chaparral we have here, uh, you know, in, in, where you live in, in Arizona, it's the same thing. When we talk to our Arizona counterparts, they're seeing fire behave like we've not seen in the past. So it's, a, it's um, definitely certain, certainly concerning for all of us. With that in mind, how effective are prevention programs like FireWise, given the fact that fires are growing in intensity? I think they're still very effective. It certainly gives, you know, those people that perhaps aren't thinking about, you know, fire as we do, you know, the citizen that decides they're going to live in a community or a development to know that, hey, there has been a model run on, on the risk, you know, with where they've chosen to, to live. I believe the models are continuing to be improved based on what we, you know, what we're experiencing. Some of the areas that we thought were given, you know, mitigation or perhaps safe or safer, what we're finding maybe is not the case. I'm hearing things from some of the developers about creating safe refuge areas within the development so that if a fire were to rapidly approach, people could, instead of getting on the road, try to run from the fire, safely refuge in, in big open areas. Um, these are things that, you know, in the past, who hadn't really been considered, but we have to, you know, in the West, we live with, we have to make sure our, our communities know that we we need to learn to live with fire. When you live in areas that um, you have canyons and open space, you don't necessarily have to be living right on the edge of that open space to be at risk. You know, when the wind blows, uh, certainly we're seeing fire start, you know, uh, many blocks within the the edge of that open area, you know, perhaps even quarter mile, half mile, we're seeing embers and fires starting in areas of, of communities that people just don't expect. It's a, it's a change.
changed environment out there, Scott, as you know. How do we deal with the public when instead of holding up the signs that say, thank you, firefighters, they perceive that the fire department isn't doing enough when they lose homes? What can we do to make the point that everything's been done that could be done? I think I think the key is being transparent, is being open and honest that, you know, as well-trained and equipped as our firefighters are, during these you know, extreme fire conditions and uh, spreads that we're seeing, there just is not enough fire equipment for firefighters to park a fire engine in every driveway. And even if we did have enough to put a fire engine in every driveway, that is not a guarantee. Much of the success we do have with fires encroach and on communities is the work that the uh, community has done themselves, the homeowner that's provided us the defensible space to operate safely and protect their home. Again, you can't put a fire engine in every driveway, so many homes will go you know, without protection. But you know, if they have the defensible space that we've asked for, it's possible that their home will survive because of the preparation they've done in advance of that fire occurring. But well, I agree with you. It's, it's nice to see the signs and, and whatnot, but, you know, structure loss has never been greater. It's never been higher. You know, life loss has never been higher. Uh, we're not we're not winning the war. We need to really, you know, uh, ask more of the community. And some of that is, hey, please, you know, please, please, please do your defensible space, have your ready, set, go plan, have everything prepared so that we stand the best chance. But uh, we're working within a completely uh, new fire environment. It's very different than it was when I started in the late 70s and, and working through the 80s. Firefighters are, are doing all they can um, to protect life and property, but it's not a reasonable expectation for you know, firefighters to be expected to lose their lives just protecting structures. You know, certainly they're willing to put it all on the line for, you know, the preservation of life. But when it comes to buildings, you know, none of us expect you know, our firefighters to push beyond the point where you know, they are now you know, likely going to lose their lives protecting the building. They'll do all they can, but when it's time to go, we expect them to go. And buildings can be rebuilt. Loss of life obviously affects so many. It's a very dangerous environment out there right now. All right, we'll leave it there. Brian Fennessy, thanks for talking with me today on Code 3. Thank you, Scott. And we put some more information about how to be prepared when fire reaches the wildland urban interface on our website, Code3Podcast.com slash WUI. Check it out. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. This time we talked about what it takes to be ready when wildland fires threaten structures. How prepared is your department? And what have your experiences been? I'd like to hear from you on this. Just email me, scott at code3podcast.com or leave a voicemail at 562 562- Three three seven nine nine zero two. I'll read your comments and play them back on a future show. 
Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's topic, or subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.